Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. According to the American Psychological Association, we're facing a children's mental health crisis. Turning the Corner is helping to address this issue by offering services to kids in DCYF custody, many of whom were removed from their homes for safety or behavioral reasons. The Reverend Laurie Smalls is the executive director of this nonprofit. She's here to talk about her work and the need for more funding to support these efforts. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with the Reverend Laurie Smalls, Executive Director of Turning the Corner in Providence and the first female pastor of Union Baptist Church in New Bedford. Thank you for joining us, Reverend. Thank you for having me. So to start with, tell us what Turning the Corner is and does. Turning the Corner Residential Treatment Programs is a program for Jamaat Housing and Community Development Corporation. Jamaat is an Arabic word for community. Turning the Corner Residential Treatment Programs provides residential care to youth who are in DCYF custody. Uh, we have six programs that can serve juvenile males and females who are in need of either temporary or long-term placement due to their status with the state or any presenting mental health or behavioral problem they may have. How many uh, youth altogether in all six programs do you serve? We can serve up to 45 youth. 45. Right. Yeah. But currently, we have about 22 in care. What's a typical time frame? So it depends. So at our assessment center, we would love it to be 30 days because that says that we've done our job. We've uh, assessed and uh, determined what's the best level of need for this youth, and they're able either to be unified with their family or go to the place of least services, right? Whether it's a foster family, an adoptive family, or ideally go back home with their family. Is that usually the goal to get them back with their families? Absolutely, because families are the experts on what they need, right? Oftentimes, it's the behaviors that become overwhelming to parents, right? Whether a youth is aggressive or assaultive or what they call non-compliant, right? Because of their own 
traumas that they're trying to process. But families are the, the expert. And so ideally for us, we should be able just to provide a, a moment of respite from the family so that they can get the services they need and then their families can come back together and work out what looks like their best version of themselves. So 30 days, sometimes it takes a couple of years, right? And if we do our job right, the youth leaves care successfully and leaves actually the custody of DCYF successfully and the families go on to what they know it to be success. What does a successful case look like? We started our program with the objective of taking the youth who wasn't successful anyplace, not successful in school, not successful in other placements, not successful in homes, right? So for us, success looks like a youth who comes in who has extreme behaviors and becomes involved in their care plan right? We're able to work with them to find out what their objectives are, what they would like to see themselves in the future. A success for us is someone who completes the program, gets involved with therapy, and then leaves, right? So we've had instances where uh, we've had youth who were bounced around from group homes and foster care placements, but have left us, gone to college, come back and said, I didn't like being here, but I liked what you provided, right? That's going to feel good. (laughs) It does. It really does. So I know you recently appeared on Generation Rising on Rhode Island PBS with Kara Butler, and you led her on a tour of what you, you call the Hospital Diversion Program for Women. Tell us about that. We recently opened that program, the Hospital Diversion Program for Girls. It's that 90 to 180-day program for juvenile females who have mental health challenges and co-occurring behavior problems. And they need a transition from the hospital to home or to semi-independence. And these are young people who are willing to work on their issues. And our goal is to provide them a safe, nurturing environment where they can successfully figure out how their behaviors will really work for them to be successful in the community. And so we were able to take them through this a program that is beautiful, calming, and successful. And I love the moment when you showed Kara the pink lions <laughs> that were part of a fireplace mantle in the dining room. Yes. What did you say the lions symbolize for the young women living there? Their strength. Right? Because when you see a lion, you always think of strength. Our facilities people intentionally painted them pink so we can let these young women know that you have strength, you have courage, you can overcome anything. And so that becomes a centerpiece when they have their daily house meetings just to remember you have strength. You may have had setbacks, you may have had difficulties, but you still have this inner strength. You have courage to face you right? Um, Because we recognize we can't change anybody else. We can change ourselves. So in the past, maybe I haven't been successful. Maybe today I'm not having a good day, but I have the courage and I have the strength within me to face my challenges, to accept challenges and difficulties, to accept failure as a part of life, and to go on and be successful. And can you talk about the tools you try to give the youth to deal with with being frustrated and angry. It seems like that's a key part of the program. Yeah, so you have to always use your words and not your hands, (laughs) right? (laughs) Small thing, right? Use your words. Be able to trust that people can handle your frustration. I applaud my staff. They hear it all. We try to give a lot uh, wide berth for young people to be able to express themselves, and we try to help them learn how to express themselves with dignity, integrity, and compassion. 
So say the words, use the words, tell people what you need, or tell us that I'm not feeling safe enough to tell you. And trust that there are adults who will care. And I was interested in what you said on the episode about how to respond when children act out. Let's, let's listen to that clip. Well, one of the things that we have found that really works for our staff is that whatever you're going through, however the youth are expressing themselves, don't take it personally. Okay. That's the hardest thing because generally, you know, we want to clap back, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes we recognize that if someone's lashing out, they're just trying to say, I need help in a different way. So don't take it personally. I think you were referring to staff members in the program not taken personally when youth act out. But tell me more about that because teachers, parents, many others probably find it hard not to take it personally. Absolutely, especially when the, you know, the words are directed towards you. So we really work on helping the staff not take it personally, but respond to it professionally. So the, one of the things in our training, we really work on not having a reaction, but having a response. So when we have a response, we're able as adults and professionals to filter through all of our training so that we don't take it personally. So it's an open door policy at turning the corner, meaning that we won't restrain the youth if they try to leave the program without permission. But if, they, if the youth are coming back every day, right? They're going to school, they're going to work, and they come back every day. They're saying that this is my place of safety, even if they're using harsh language, even if they're being insulting, even if they're being aggressive, they're still saying to you, I find it safe here. So whatever they're saying to you, don't take it personally. They're here saying it to you. Mm. So that means that they know that this is a safe place and it's hard. So you got to process through your stuff every day. Yeah, that's got to be tough. During the Generation Rising episode, Kara Butler had a chance to talk to Crystal, yes. the mother of one of the girls in your program. Here's what she had to say about the changes she saw in her daughter. I feel like I got my little girl back. Like, it's, she ain't all the way there yet, but she was so cold before, like angry. And it was almost like she was full of hate and just so much going on. And it was going on for so long that it was like we couldn't take that space and then come back to something fresh. Tell me about that idea of coming back to something fresh. How does your program do that? My staff is superstars. <laughs> <laughs> they have created an environment where they really encourage and challenge the youth to be their best version of themselves. And that's hard because oftentimes the young person doesn't know what that is. They know what they want. They don't know how to get there. And so our staff doesn't tell them. They, they walk with them. We're really working on assisting rather than doing for, right? Because assisting says that this young person is engaging in the process. So how do I assist you to get from here to there? What do you want? And so every day we have this uh, tool we use. It's called a daily observation form. We use it so that our staff can catch the girls doing great things rather than being punitive, saying, hey, I saw that you had a difficulty with your um, housemate, but you handled it well. So that reinforces positive mm. behavior. And that's, that's really the key, right? If we encourage them when they're doing something wonderful, it, that positive reinforcement is really Showing them what to do instead of what not to do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it, encouraging them when they're doing it. Right, right. right. Yeah. The American Psychological Association has a trends report titled Kids, Mental Health is in Crisis. 
Are you seeing that crisis out there? Yes. What's causing it and what can be done about it? I think it's a myriad of issues. For young people now, COVID was really traumatic. Right. Their whole life was turned upside down in an instant and then turned back around in an instant. That swing is it's hard for adults, but youth whose brains are still developing, they were immediately cut off from their peers and the people and you know, traumatized whether they would die from COVID. Their schooling was interrupted, so their regular routine was interrupted. And then in an instant, it was turned back. To expect youth and even adults to respond to that in what would be considered a rational way is irrational. And the other part is there's not a lot of services available. Getting youth into, and, and even adults into psychiatric services, oftentimes it's a three to six month waiting period. By then you're kind of left to yourself. What have been the results of having that long period of being isolated and scared? Oftentimes that shows up as aggression mm. because when I, I don't know the words to say, I'm too proud to say I'm scared, what I'll do is I'll lash out right? I'll lash out against other people or I'll turn it inward and harm myself. Mm. And so those behaviors we're seeing, the self-harm, the aggression is a part of saying, I'm scared. I don't know how to say it. I'm frustrated. I feel like my voice is not being heard. Those are the behaviors we're seeing, right? And so if you give them a platform to say, you, you know, we're, you're safe, you're safe to cry, you're safe to melt down, and we'll make sure no one harms you, is really healing, right? Because oftentimes they just need to be able to process this, mm. right? I don't know what's going to happen in the future. That type of anxiety is real. So we get to say to them, yeah, no one really knows what's going to happen in the future. But what you can do is manage right now. That's really helpful too, right? Because if you're always anxious about tomorrow, you never get to enjoy today. I mean, the pandemic's easing, but are you still seeing signs of that period? Yeah, so we, we're still getting youth who really found the, to be placed in the hospital was their safest place. Mm. But no youth should grow up in a hospital. You know, a hospital really should be for high crisis resources. But unfortunately, because our sector has been chronically underfunded, there are not what they call available placements. Yeah, talk to me about that. Are there enough facilities, enough beds and programs such as yours in Rhode Island for young people experiencing behavioral issues? Unfortunately not. Yeah. What needs to be done? Money. <laughs> we need to actually resource the sector to be able to provide care for the youth and have uh, what is considered a, a continuum of care. So if the sector is properly funded and there's adequate um, spaces, ideally a youth should be able to come into a higher level of care and progressively move down to a lower le level of care, ideally home. And the supports need to be given to families when they are able to say, this is what I need to help raise my child. We're getting there, but we're not there now. So there are still many youth who, unfortunately, because Rhode Island does not have that cohort of service available that are placed out of state. And so, again, if you're placed out of state, you're disconnected from your community, you're disconnected from your family, your friends, 
And Governor McKee's administration is now working on a budget request for the next year. So what would you like to see in the governor's next budget proposal? I would love to see this care sector fully funded, supported by the request that agencies have made as we assess what we need in terms of attracting and retaining qualified uh, staff to this field. Most people work in this sector, the residential care sector, for about five years. Mm. And then either from burnout or attrition or lack of funding because nonprofit work is <laughs> chronically underfunded, they go on to someplace else, right? Yeah, and yeah. so in order for us to attract and retain like clinicians, clinical staff and direct care staff, we really do need to have it funded in a way that helps people not have to work two and three jobs just to do this work. So people who come to this work working with other people's children, they're angels, right? Mm. And they do it because they really want to make a difference, but we need to be able to compensate them so that they can live on the salary. Yeah, it sounds like such difficult work. Is there more the state could do to increase their salaries? There is. So each year we put budget requests from the Department of Children, Youth, and, and Families uh, for this work, right? And they have to go to the General Assembly. Recently, we met with the Office of Insurance Commissioner, Corey King, who said this sector had been so chronically underfunded that the cost of reimbursement to programs was divorced from reality. Wow. Right? Because the cost to operate versus the cost at which we're compensated did not uh, <laughs> take into consideration, you know, cost of living, inflation, and all those things. We don't have the luxury of changing our rates. We're not like just general business. You know, when costs go up or we raise our rates, it doesn't work like that. It's all contractual. If you could get one new law passed in the Rhode Island General Assembly next year to improve the lives of, of these young people, what would it be? I would pass the law where they could go to college for free. When they see themselves as accomplished and they have a future path that is not an economic burden, they're more likely to go for that, right? But right now, we're still struggling with that. Um, and these kids who have been in care, foster care, some who are really in the care of the state, what hope do they have to go to the next level without being financially impugned? So I know you're a pastor at Union Baptist Church, and I saw the sermon you gave at St. George's School. I wanted to ask, what, you, what do you see as your gift, as, as the gift that will help make the world a better place? What a wonderful question. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like um, one of my gifts is leadership and teaching. What I do when I preach, when I, I lead, my hope is to be able to inspire people who come to my church or people who work for me to say, I, I can see myself in this position. My hope is that when I interact with young people, I show them that there's a hope out there for them and that they can remember I was someplace where people cared for me. And as I go forward in my life, I know that I could be that type of person, right? So leadership is always reflective of our aspirations. I'm hoping that I'm, I'm an inspiration to someone, right? I came to this work from my, my late father, my late sister, who really believed in giving back. And I'm so blessed to be able to work with my siblings. We work in this field together. We do this because we really believe that we have been blessed with these amazing gifts, that it's our responsibility to give back, to make our little corner of the world a better place. For our listeners, what would you say to them about finding their gift and using it? 
I would say that find the thing that you're most passionate about that you could do every day, whether someone said thank you or not. And if that's the thing that gets you up in the morning, then pursue that with gusto. Work at it so that you are happy with yourself, that every day that you close your eyes, you can say, I gave the best version of myself to the world daily. Reverend Smalls, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Season one of Generation Rising is available now at ripbs.org. Topics in the series include indigenous land acknowledgement, eating disorders in the BIPOC community, affirmative action, life after incarceration, and more. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge-watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.